You are listening to Understanding Christianity. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Cole. I'm the lead pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. I also serve as an adjunct instructor at Colorado Christian University. Thank you for listening to the podcast today. Reformed Christians, like myself, understand that the Bible teaches unconditional election of certain individuals to be saved. In addition, we see a distinction between the outward call of the gospel and the inward or effectual call that actually sovereignly brings about the conversion of a sinner. This doctrine is clearly taught in Matthew chapter 22, verses 1 through 14, in the parable of the wedding banquet. Yet, those that may be from a traditional Southern Baptist background or an Arminian background, they see this parable as primarily teaching the differing ways God makes His choices, the differing ways in which God does His electing work. And so in this podcast, I'm going to ask the question, do we build a theology of election from a parable in Matthew 22 and then import that faulty understanding into every other passage that teaches election or predestination? Or do we have to understand the purpose of that parable and let the teaching stand alone as what Christ was going to, uh, what was accomplishing when he taught parables and then understand the doctrine of election didactically as it's taught in the context in those passages that clearly teach election. And so oftentimes uh, this has become a confusing parable in how it's interpreted. Uh, So let's just read the parable. And let's try to understand what Jesus was teaching. Matthew 22, 1 through 14. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who were invited, See, I've prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention, and went off, one to his farm, another to his business. While the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready. But those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both good and bad. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guest, he saw there was a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. So let's just ask the question, is this parable focusing on God's different ways of choosing? Or is this parable primarily focused on the response of those who were called? This is a parable about the kingdom of of heaven. Obviously, God the Father represents the king, and the son in the parable represents Jesus. 
Now, when we come to interpret parables, we have to be very careful. Sometimes people are tempted to press every detail in a parable to draw out the meaning, and sometimes you can lose the forest for the trees. There's been a lot of writing about how to interpret parables. You have all the way back to the early church fathers, and you had the Alexandrian school um, that was more allegorical versus the Antiochian school that was more literal in their interpretations. You had uh, the Roman Catholic understanding of how to teach parables, and you get to the Protestant Reformation where you go back to a more historical, grammatical, and then um, in the 1800s, Uh, Some German theologians gave some insight into this. Uh, And so this is a debate that's gone on for for many, many hundreds of years on how to interpret a parable. Um, But most scholars are at least in accord with this this principle when it comes to interpreting parables. A parable is generally, and I say generally, meant to teach one or sometimes two main points and to drive the audience that Jesus is preaching the parable to, to respond. Now, they may either respond in confusion, they may either respond in shock or anger, but one of the things you have to understand about the parables of Jesus is you cannot remain neutral to a parable. And this is a parable of the kingdom, a parable of the kingdom. The parable of the kingdom is meant to show that Jesus is the Messiah who has shown up on the scene to Israel And remember, Matthew's primary audience that he... Let's just talk about some synoptic issues here. Matthew's primary audience are Jews. He writes in a lot of ways to connect with a Jewish audience. Mark, on the other hand, his purpose is to write to Gentiles who were persecuted during the time of being in Rome. Luke is a Gentile himself. He is writing to Gentiles. Matthew is probably the most predominant of the synoptic gospels, the most Jewish in nature. So he has a lot of parables of the kingdom to show that Jesus is the Messiah who's shown up on the scene to Israel and Jesus is demanding an urgent response to repent and believe in him. So the parable, the purpose of of the parable is urgency in responding to Jesus as the Messiah. Since the kingdom of God is at hand, and Jesus is on the scene, the issue is the Jews of his day are not receiving him. They are rejecting him. So oftentimes a parable can also be an act of judgment upon unbelieving Jews for their stubborn unbelief. So generally a parable is not meant to be allegorized or to press every detail in order to build a comprehensive theology about a doctrine. But fundamentally, the purpose of a parable is to urge listeners to respond in that moment to Jesus. Klein Snodgrass, an interesting name, uh, Clyde Snodgrass has written a helpful chapter on how to preach parables. There's a book called Preaching the New Testament um, that's edited by Ian Paul and David Wenham. It's by InterVarsity Press. And he has a chapter and they're called Preaching Jesus' Parables. And he writes this. He says, quote, Historically, the church allegorized virtually every feature of a parable, usually in directions that have no relation to Jesus' teachings. The real issue is how the analogy functions. But parables are not one-for-one analogies, as if reality and image were connected by an equal sign. They picture actual realities partly 
but are intended to make people think and question. And they often do so through hyperbole, surprise, and inexactness. People want each parable to have a complete theology. They never are. I agree with his conclusions. You don't have a complete theology in a parable. That's not the purpose. Now, parables teach theology. Why would Jesus give them if they didn't teach theology? But they do not give us a complete theology. Oftentimes there's hyperbole, there's exaggeration, there's surprise, there's shock, uh, there's, there's, there's inexactness. And so you have to look at the overall thrust of what the parable's purpose is to do. And so uh, what's the main point or central thrust of this particular parable in Matthew 22? One of the keys for interpreting parables is to focus on what I call the punchline or usually what Jesus brings at the very end as he brings the story to an end and gives some type of commentary or some type of comment. So the focus, I believe, on this parable is on the responses of those called to the wedding banquet and the commentary that Jesus makes at the end. I do not believe the focus of this parable is on the different ways that God chooses. Some argue that the primary way to understand this parable is to see the different way that God chooses. And so they'll say, uh, divine choice number one, the choice of his servants who were given the task of sending out the invitation. So that's the focus is number one, God chooses the servants. So that's choice number one. Um, The text doesn't actually say God chose his servants. Actually, the Greek word there is apostello. They're sent out. And really, the servants are incidental to the story. They're secondary. They're they're not that important. They they serve to show how the invitation or the call was sent out. But the focus is not so much on God's choice of the servants, but on the responses to the servants' invitation. Then they'll say divine choice number two is the choice to send the invitation first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles, that God made a choice to send out the invitation. And then they'll say choice number three is to allow only those clothed in proper wedding garments to enter the feast. So they they say there's three ways of choosing. Don't just conflate the fact that that everything that you see is God's unconditional election of sinners to salvation. There's many different ways that God chooses. I agree with that assessment. The Bible does speak of many different ways that God chooses, but that's not the point of this parable. While one can argue that there's evidence in these parables of the different way that God chooses, that's not the focus of this parable. This parable is not meant to give a treatment on the differing ways that God chooses, but I think the purpose of this parable is to show in surprising and exaggerated or hyperbolic ways the differing groups respond to the invitation or to the call. Now, the interesting thing about this parable is the Greek grammar. The word for invited that's used all throughout this this wedding invitation parable, the Greek word is kaleo, which means called, those who were called. Uh, In our English translations, we we get the word invited because we understand that more in relation to to a party or to a wedding feast, but the actual Greek word there is called. So let's see the responses of those called. In verse 3, The servants call, literally, those who were called, but it says they would not come. They would not. Now, the would not come is in what we call the imperfect tense in the Greek language. Uh, Imperfect is a past tense, 
but it's a past tense of continuous action. You could translate the imperfect uh, such as this. They were continually. They were constantly. It was their pattern to not be willing or desiring to come. It, it really, when, when, when you have the imperfect tense related to an unwillingness, it reveals a continual refusal or stubbornness to come. The issue is they had no desire to come. They didn't want to come when called. Interestingly, Jesus addresses this in John chapter 5, verses 21 through 25. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom He wishes. For not even the Father judges anyone, but He has given all judgment to the Son, so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my words and believes Him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Okay, Jesus is saying in this passage of Scripture, just like the Father in the Old Testament was the only one who had power to raise the dead miraculously, Jesus, because He is God in the flesh, equal with the Father, He has power to give life. Not not just resurrection, physical life. He has the power to give sovereign, regenerative life to whomever He wills. Jesus is teaching His absolute sovereignty and over who He's going to give spiritual life to. And then later on in that passage, in John 5, 39-40, He's looking at the, the Jewish leaders and He's saying, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness to Me. Yet you refuse refuse to come to me that you may have life. You refuse to come. Why are they refusing to come in the John 5 passage? They are refusing to come because they don't want to come. They don't have the desire to come. They do not have the ability to come. And they would come if Jesus granted them life to come. Because Jesus gives life to whomever He will. And He's not giving these men life to come to Him at this point in time. So Jesus is even sovereign over the choice of who's going to come to Him. And these men were not willing. There's no desire. So that's response number one. They were not willing. Response number two in the parable back in Matthew 22. In verse four, the servants go out again. They call the called and they give more information about, about the spread. Hey, listen, um, there's great food. There's a fatted calf. The king has gone to great expense to celebrate his son's wedding feast. So, so come. Well, in verse four, it says, they pay, or actually verse 5, they paid no attention and went off one to his farm and another to his business. So response number two is they paid no attention. Literally in the Greek text, they didn't care. They didn't care. They went off to worldly pursuits. So response number one is they had no desire. They, did, they would not come. Response number two, they paid no attention. They, they really didn't care. Response number three, though, is outright hostility and violence. Verse six, the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. So you've got three negative responses to the call. 
One, they would not come because they didn't have a desire to come. Number two, they could care less. They paid no attention. They didn't. They heard it, but it wasn't effectual. They, they didn't. They didn't. They didn't come because they didn't pay attention. They they heard the information. They heard the call, but they didn't come. And number three, there was violence. There was hostility to the call. Let's look at response number four. Well, the king gets rightfully angry. He burns down their city, and he says, "Okay, I'm going to send the servants out again." And this time, go out to the main roads and find anybody who they could find, both good and bad. So this represents those who actually accepted the message and came to the feast because they were clothed in the right garments. Okay, so he goes out. They they came in. The wedding, it says the wedding hall was filled with guests. So evidently, on this fourth time, or this fourth group, They responded to the call. They came to the wedding feast. They are there celebrating the sun. That's response number four. Then at the end, there's a punchline. Response number five, there's a a fifth response. The king looks around at his wedding guests and he finds a man with no wedding garment who tried to come into the banquet on his own terms, in his own righteousness, and he is cast out into outer darkness because he's in there without the right garments. And he's speechless. He has no defense. Now, that's the story. Now, what do these groups represent? Well, most scholars will teach that the first three groups are the Jews who rejected Jesus. They killed the prophets. They killed the messengers. The second group, both good and bad, represent the Gentiles who were chosen to come and they were provided a wedding garment by the king. Now here's something that's very often left out of interpreting this parable. Most scholars argue that if you go back and look at history and you look at the way wedding banquets happened in Jewish times is that the king would graciously supply the wedding garments to the attendees. They didn't go out and find their own garments. They didn't go get themselves dressed. The the ability to even come into the feast and having the right garments was granted by the king as a gift of grace. Yet one man comes in without the right clothes. He was not chosen. Those who rejected the message were not chosen. The Jews who rejected Jesus... And the man who came on his, in on his own terms were not chosen. So that's why Jesus ends the parable with the punchline in verse 14. For many are called, but few are chosen. Now, what is the one consistent issue in this entire parable? What's the one thing? When you look at Bible studies, when you look at these parables, look for consistency. What's the one consistent thing in the entire parable? Every single group was called. The call went out to every single one of them. They were all called to the wedding banquet. Yet, only those who were chosen and graciously given the right clothing were fit to enter the banquet. So, the theological point that Jesus makes at the end would be very surprising and very shocking to the original audience of Jews who were hearing this, especially Matthew's audience that he is addressing in his gospel. 
Many people, even Jews, who are outwardly called to salvation. And and obviously the Messianic banquet, the banquet of the Messiah, is a metaphor for salvation in the Son, in Jesus. Many people, even Jews, who are outwardly called to salvation, but yet only those who are chosen for salvation will come because God graciously grants them saving faith and righteousness. Now, this would be shocking to the original audience because they thought as Jews, they were, quote-unquote, automatically chosen. They were God's special people. Yet by their rejection of Jesus, it proved that they were not among the elect. And surprisingly, the surprising thing is that the Gentiles, those who were considered bad, the Gentile dogs, the sinful tax collectors and prostitutes and Gentile dogs, they were entering the kingdom ahead of the religious people. They were chosen for salvation. This parable is not meant to teach the differing ways that God chooses, but to show that there is an external call that goes out to all people, inviting them to come to Christ. But yet there is an internal call or effectual call that actually creates the faith in the elect or the chosen so that they will come to faith in Christ. In verse 14, the punchline, the shocking statement at the end, the the theological comment that Jesus gives, you have two Greek words that are combined, called and chosen. Elsewhere in the New Testament, you see these two same words or word groupings also combined. So when you look at the analogy of faith, where you look at Scripture interpreting Scripture, you can build a comprehensive theology of calling and choosing, because both those words are together, based upon where else you see those words used in context. So semantically, for many are called, kaleo, but few are chosen, eklektos, elected, chosen. Where else do we see this concept? specifically in a salvific context where Paul particularly is teaching salvation. Romans 8.30 Those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now obviously in the Romans 8.30 passage, the word is predestined, not election, but it's the same concept. Right there you have God's predestination, God's choosing, along with God's calling. That those two words stuck together, just like Jesus did, where he says, many are called, but few are chosen. You also see this in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9. God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. God's purpose and grace given to us before the ages began speaks about God's election, God's purpose of salvation, God's electing work that was done before the foundation of the world. And that's linked to calling and saving and salvation. So the traditionalist, non-Calvinistic Southern Baptist or the Arminian may see this parable as predominantly teaching the three ways that God chooses and then builds a theology on election based upon that, and then imports that understanding into other contexts that clearly teach 
unconditional election to salvation. We in the Reformed tradition see this parable as teaching the distinction between the external call of the gospel and the internal or effectual call that goes to the elect. Now, the Bible does not use the term external call or internal call or efficacious call. But this parable and elsewhere teach that there is a calling that is not efficacious. In other words, there is an external call that goes out that does not actually end in a person coming to faith. You see this in Mark chapter 16 at the end. Mark's version of the Great Commission, Mark 16, 15 through 16. He said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. Okay, do you see in verse 15 the outward call? Go into all the world, proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. The external call goes out in the preaching of the gospel to all creation. But in verse 16 it says there will be some who do not believe and they stand condemned. So there is an external call that goes out, but it does not end in effectual salvation. There are going to be some who hear the external call that will not believe and be condemned. In Matthew chapter 22, in the parable we just looked at, some that were called did not come. And yet some that were called did come. Why did some come to faith in Christ and others not come to faith in Christ? Again, the one consistency in this parable is the outward call or the invitation. The difference that Jesus makes at the very end of the parable is that those who come or those who were given the right to have the right clothes on did so because they were chosen to come. The call went out to everyone and only the chosen, the elect, effectually came to the banquet. Something was done for them that was not done for those that did not come. Now, the argument on both sides between the reform view and the non-reform view is why did they come and why did the others not come? The traditionalist Southern Baptist, the non-Calvinist, argues that the reason that the few came is because they had the ability to respond to the gospel invitation when it was given. They made the free will choice to admit their sinfulness so as to be clothed in righteousness. God's gracious choice was not so much to unconditionally elect sinners before the foundation of the world, but God's gracious choice was to send the invitation to them. And God's gracious choice was to choose messengers to make sure that the invitation would go to them. And once they got the invitation, once they knew that there was a party that they could come to, they had the ability to say yes or no to the invitation. Simply by inviting them, calling them, God is granting them the ability to come. That's where the ability and lack of ability comes in the traditionalist view of the issue of salvation. Their view is that the inability to come to Christ is not moral or spiritual due to total depravity or spiritual deadness or being condemned in Adam but they would argue that simply being unaware that there's a wedding feast in the first place is the inability. 
Once the person has the invitation to come, once the person is presented with the idea that, hey, you're invited, he or she is now being granted the ability to come. So it's not a moral or spiritual ability through regeneration or effectual calling to overcome the deadness which made them unable in the first place, spiritually and morally, but the ability now is just simply the knowledge that there's a wedding feast and that they can attend it. So for the traditionalist, the non-Calvinist, the inability is a lack of knowledge or information that there is a party and has nothing to do with moral or spiritual deadness. The inability was not inherent due to Adam's sin that rendered them incapable from birth to morally respond in repentance and faith. The inability was that they did not have the knowledge that they could come to the wedding feast if invited. Now we as Calvinists see this totally different. We argue that the parable does not teach total depravity or total inability per se. Okay, so we, we, we're not pressing every detail in the parable where we, we're going to import total depravity in there when, when we don't see it. And we don't look at the main point being the different ways that God chooses. What we do is we see the punchline at the end is the real point. The point of this parable is there is an external call that goes out to many and they will not come. They will refuse. They will have otherworldly pursuits. They may even become hostile. And they may try to come in on their own terms. All the different responses that you saw that were negative. But only those whom are chosen or whom are elect will come. So God must do something special in that group that does come that He does not do for those who don't come. So what does God do? What God does for the elect, what God does for the chosen is to effectuate or to sovereignly cause regeneration through an internal calling that comes through both the preaching of the gospel and the Holy Spirit to ensure infallibly that the chosen will come. God will work in the elect to give them the desire to come and the ability to come. Unregenerate people lack, because of their deadness, lack both the desire to come, that they don't want to come, they're not willing to come, and they lack the capacity or the ability to come. They can't come. So lost people don't want to come to Christ. They could care less. They don't want to. They don't have a desire to. And they can't come. They don't have the ability or the capacity to come. So God must overcome that rebellion. He must overcome that deadness. He must overcome that spiritual hostility. And He must regenerate their hearts to grant them a willingness and an ability to come in faith. So we argue as Calvinists, as those in the Reformed theology tradition, that there is distinctly an external call and an internal or effectual call. Now let me give you some biblical examples of the external call or the outward call of the gospel. Isaiah 45, 22, God says, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. That's an external call. That's, that's a call that I would make on a Sunday morning preaching the gospel. I would say to everybody in the audience, Turn to Jesus and be saved, all of you. We'll go into villages in India 
and will call those that are there in pagan idolatry and Hinduism, turn to Jesus and be saved. So we can go to all the earth, according to what Mark's gospel tells us. We can preach the gospel to all creation externally and say to every single person, turn to Jesus in order to be saved. Isaiah 55, 1. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Come to the waters of Jesus. Come to Jesus. Come to Christ. Jesus himself said this in Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30. Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come. Every single one of you, under the sound of my voice, you are commanded, you are invited, you are urged to come. Come to Jesus. Turn from sin. Come to Christ. That's the external call. And as a passionate Calvinist, I can make that every time I preach the gospel, every time I share the gospel. I can look a sinner in the eye and say, you are commanded. You need to come to Christ. I don't care what your background is. I don't care what your ethnicity is. I don't care where you're from. I don't care if you're male or female. Uh, The Bible commands you in this moment right now to come to Christ. Now, interestingly, in that Matthew passage, where Jesus says, come to me all who are weary and heaven laden, and I will give you rest. If you just back up a few verses, it's interesting what Jesus says right before the external call. Matthew eleven twenty five through 27, the verses right before that. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Sounds like sovereign election. God had a gracious will. God had a gracious purpose in hiding gospel truths and revealing them to quote-unquote, little children. And Jesus says that the only way somebody's going to know the Father is if Jesus chooses to reveal that. So you've got Christ's sovereign choice and who's going to be saved, who's going to come based upon His sovereign pleasure. And then just in, in, in the next verse, He says, come all. So in that passage of Scripture, you almost see the external and internal call. Jesus says, come to me all who are weary and heavenly laden. That's the external call. But who's going to come? Who's going to come when they hear that external call? Only those to whom the Son has chosen to reveal the Father. Only to those who have been revealed gospel truth through a a sovereign working of the internal call. At the end of Revelation, chapter 22, verse 17, the Spirit and the Bride say, come. Let the one who hears say, come. Come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires to take the life of water without price. The very end of the Bible has the external call. Come, come, come to the waters. Come to Christ. Come to Jesus. But let me remind you, in Revelation 13, 8, the same book, all who dwell on the earth will worship it, talking about the beast, everyone whose name has not 
been written before the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the Lamb who was slain. There is the elect, the chosen, the people of God whose names have been specifically written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. And so when the invitation goes out to come, only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life will effectually come, even though the external call goes out to all creation. So there is evidence of an external call that goes out, but there's also evidence of an effectual or an internal calling let's go back to romans eight thirty. those whom he predestined he also called and those whom he called he also justified and those whom he justified he also glorified now obviously the word effectual or internal does not come before the word calling there in the bible but yet we see in romans eight thirty that all whom god calls those same people he also justifies. This is called the golden chain of redemption. For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined. Those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he also justified. There's this golden chain of redemption that the chain is not broken, that God does the same thing for all those who are spoken about in that particular arena. So implicit in this golden chain is the idea that God creates the faith or that the calling that God gives does something efficacious that actually brings about justification. All those who are called are justified. Okay, how is one justified? Well, earlier in the, in, in the book of Romans, Paul is very clear. One is justified through faith alone in Christ. So does the outward call that goes out to everyone indiscriminately also affect justification in everyone who hears absolutely not only those who trust in christ are justified well the question is why do they have faith in christ well according to this passage because they were called was it a general call or was it an internal call that actually effectuates or grants or creates the saving faith that comes as a gift Remember, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no man may boast. That entire package is a gift of God. Your faith, grace, salvation. The faith that you had to come to Christ to be justified was in itself a gift that came to you through the effectual calling. Philippians 1, 29. For it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in Him, but also to suffer for his sake. It's been granted to you to believe. Faith is a gift. Believing is a gift. Now, 1 Corinthians 1, 26-30 really combines the idea of the effectual call with God's choosing. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. 
Notice here Paul combines God's choosing with God's calling. It's an effectual um, calling. The, the choosing results in the effectual calling. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, 13-14. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. How? Through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. It was for this He called you, how? Through our gospel, that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, Paul makes an argument here. He's thanking God for the Thessalonians because God had chosen them from the beginning for salvation. When did that choice happen that God chose them from the beginning? Well, he says it in Ephesians, it's before the foundation of the world. God chose the elect before the foundation of the world. For salvation. And what happened at a point in time? They were called to the gospel through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit and through faith. So the the Holy Spirit did the effectual call. He created the faith and they came to Christ in salvation. So the call, the effectual call, was a result of the, the choosing. Many are called, but few are chosen. Second Timothy 1, 8 through 9. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me as prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ from all eternity. Again, I talked about that earlier, how this passage combines the idea of the sovereign calling of God with his purpose and grace that happened in eternity past. This parable is teaching the distinction between the external call of the gospel that goes to many and the internal call of the gospel that only goes to the elect and ensures that they will respond positively by coming to Christ. Now, traditionalist Southern Baptists categorically deny the distinction between two callings. I've referenced this many times, the traditional statement that has been put forth by the traditionalist, the Connect 316 group, uh, those in the Southern Baptist Convention who have drafted their own statement of faith to clarify what they believe is a a soteriological response to the rise of Calvinism that they see as, uh, as, as negative, and they've written the traditional statement. And in Article 8, The Free Will of Man, I want, to read your deni- I want to read the denial because they're very clear. One thing I appreciate about the traditional statement is they don't hide anything. They, they lay their cards on the table. Here's what they say. We deny that the decision of faith is an act of God rather than a response to the person. We deny that there is an effectual call for certain people that is different from a general call to any person who hears and understands the gospel. They deny two issues. The first one's a little difficult to understand. They say we deny that the decision of faith is an act of God rather than a response to the person. Um, it's kind of confusing. I don't think any Calvinist affirms that God does the believing for the lost person. Uh, we believe that God changes the heart. God makes a dead sinner willing to believe. And once they've been given the gifts of repentance and faith, the sinner willingly believes or quotes, unquote, makes a decision for Christ. Uh, we believe that faith 
is the response of the person. But the faith itself is a gift of God, whereby the sinner has been made willing and able through effectual calling and regeneration. That's what we believe. I think what they're attempting to deny is that faith itself is a gift given specifically to the elect. But what it sounds like is that um, faith is an act of God. Um, faith is not an act of God. Faith is a gift of God. We, act, we as humans exercise faith in Christ, but the faith that we exercise is a gift from God. Not that God does the believing for us or God does the, the um, act of faith for us, but God grants us the gift of faith. So if I were them, I would reword this to say, we deny that the decision of faith is a gift of God rather than a response of the person. Uh, just to clarify their language there. But number two, more importantly, they deny the effectual call. Now, the denial is, is again, kind of confusing. They say, they deny that there, there is an effectual call for certain people that is different from a general call to any person who hears and understands the gospel. Um, a person who hears and understands the gospel must also respond positively to Christ in repentance and faith. And so many will hear the outward call and they'll understand the facts of the gospel, but, but they don't exercise saving faith. Um, David Allen, one of the leading traditionalists, he's written the book on um, against a limited, limited atonement. Um, I respect David Allen. I think he's a, a good, godly man. Um, I think his exegesis is a little off, on, especially on the area of the atonement. I appreciate the time and, and attention he did to write a full volume addressing the, the doctrine of atonement. I think he's a great hero for expository preaching. But um, in 2014, on the SBC Today website, he wrote this. Quote, while compatibilists argue that no one is saved apart from an exercise of their free will, we are simply saying that an irresistible grace vitiates free will for reasons stated above. In the Calvinist system, the elect are regenerated by an act of God, which is impossible for them to resist or decline. It seems difficult to avoid the conclusion that God is indeed, quote, imposing salvation. There you have it. They believe that irresistible grace vitiates free will. And that if we are elected by an act of God, then there's no way we can resist that because of God's sovereignty. And so they view irresistible grace, they view the internal call, the effectual call, as imposing salvation. Interesting language. God is imposing His salvation as if a dead sinner wants to be saved, wants to come, has the ability to come, and by golly, God is overriding their free will and He's imposing His salvation on people that really don't want to come to Him, and He's imposing that. What we look at as lost people are dead. Lost people are hostile. They're enslaved to sin. They, they don't have the desire to come. They don't have the capacity to come. They don't want to come, and they can't come. And so God's not, quote-unquote, imposing salvation. God's bringing resurrection to those who in no way can resurrect themselves, those who in no way desire to come, those in no way who can repent and believe. And so God's not imposing. God is graciously, freely liberating the will that's in bondage by granting them the ability and the desire to come. Tom Askell, who is the leader of the Founders Movement, um, he wrote 
a document in response to the traditional statement. It's called Traditional Theology and the SBC. Uh, you can go on founders.org and find that. said this. He's commenting on Romans 8.30, what we talked about earlier. He said, quote, If there's no distinction between the call of God that results in salvation through the effectual working of His Spirit and the general call of the gospel that goes out every time it's preached, then we are forced to conclude from this golden chain of salvation that everyone who's called by hearing the gospel will be justified and glorified. And that's a strong argument. I mean, that's the argument of, of the golden chain. If you take it to its logical conclusion that there's an external call, then that external call is every time infallibly always going to result in those being justified and glorified, which leads to universalism, unless there's a special internal call. Askell also gives a quote from the late W.A. Criswell. Um, obviously, Criswell was the pastor of First Baptist Dallas a very venerable leader in Southern Baptist life. There's been some debate over whether he was a Calvinist or whether he's not. Um, those that, that, that you know, are part of the Criswell um, you know, College and First Baptist Dallas and those that have, have been around him would say he's not. I'll let the writing speak for itself. This is a sermon he preached in 1983 on Romans 9, 15-16 at First Baptist Church in Dallas. These are exact words from his sermon. There is a general call, but there's also an effective call. In the great general call, most of them did not respond. Most of them did not hear. Most of them did not believe. Most of them did not come. But always some came, some heard, some were saved. The effectual calling of God. I read in Acts thirteen forty-eight: when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many was, as were ordained to eternal life believed. I turn the page again and I read in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Brethren, beloved, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation, whereunto he called you by your gospel, there is an effectual call. There are those who listen. God opens their hearts. God speaks to them and they hear their name called and they respond. The effectual calling of the elective choosing spirit of the Lord. It's a very clear teaching of the effectual call versus the outward call by W.A. Criswell. Well, we would go to the Second London Baptist Confession of 1689 to help us clarify what this means. They have an entire chapter on effectual calling. Chapter 10, paragraph 1. Those whom God hath predestined unto life, he's pleased in his appointed and accepted time effectually to call by his word and spirit out of that state of sin and death in which they are by nature to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ enlightening their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God, taking away their heart of stone and giving to them a heart of flesh, renewing their wills, and by His almighty power determining them that which is good and effectually drawing them to Jesus Christ, so yet as they come most freely, being made willing by His grace. I love that description. That, that, I think that's a, a, a solidly biblical description of what the Bible teaches. Paragraph 2. This effectual call is of God's free and special grace alone, not from anything at all foreseen in man, nor from any power or agency in the creature, being wholly passive therein, being dead in sins and trespasses until being quickened and renewed by the Holy Spirit. He is thereby enabled to answer this call and to embrace the grace offered and conveyed in it, and that by no less power than that which raised up Christ from the dead. That's a great definition. So, 
There is a distinction in the traditionalist view and the, the Calvinist view of how we understand the doctrine of effectual calling. In the traditionalist view, as I said earlier, the inability to come is not moral or spiritual, but a lack of knowledge or not knowing there's an invitation or appeal to come to Christ. When the appeal or invitation is extended, they assume the sinner has libertarian free will to respond either positively or negatively to God's own appeal to be reconciled. When they choose to come, God then responds to them, meeting the conditions of their conversion by saving them when they repent and believe. And their idea of elections corporate in that Christ is the elect one and God has chosen a plan of salvation that whoever's in Christ through faith then becomes one of the elect. There's no individual unconditional election before time. So here is the order of salvation for the traditionalist. And I will give the order of salvation for the Calvinist because I think we both have what's called an ordo salutis or an order of salvation. Here's what I believe the traditionalist order of salvation is based upon their writings, based upon my interaction with them, uh, based upon all the things that I I have seen them uh, put out. Number one, God chose Christ to be the redeemer of a people called the church. Number two, God chose a plan that all who would believe in Jesus would be part of that elect plan, this chosen people of God, not particular individuals being chosen before time. They argue, number three, people are born sinners, stained with corruption from Adam, but they're not totally unable to repent and believe due to spiritual deadness. Number four, spiritual deadness is merely separation and rebellion from God, but not a deadness that cannot respond positively to God. Number five, all people retain libertarian free will, whereby they can make a contracausal choice between two options. Number six, the inability to believe in Jesus is not moral or spiritual from birth due to Adam, but merely a lack of information that they have not been invited to Jesus. They need to know they are invited. They need to be called. Number seven, when they're called outwardly, they can accept or reject the call. They now have been granted the ability to believe due to the invitation being given to them through the gospel. Number eight, once a sinner chooses freely to meet the conditions of salvation by repenting and believing, God chooses to save them. Number nine, they use their free will to come to Christ, and at that point in time, they are, quote, marked in Christ and become one of the elect. Since they are in Christ by their own choosing, they have entered into God's eternal plan of salvation that was predestined before creation. Thus, they are chosen. Number 10, once in Christ, they will be kept eternally secure. Eternal security is somewhat an inconsistency in the scheme because up to this point, the sinner has used contracausal free will to come to Christ And yet when saved, somehow that libertarian free will to not fall away or apostatize has been overcome in regeneration. Now that's not a flyby of their order of salutis, but I think that if I had a traditionalist in the room, that they would say, yeah, that's pretty close to what we believe. What's the order of salutis for the Calvinists? What's our order of salvation that we understand the Bible teaches? Number one, God the Father and God the Son entered into a covenant of redemption in eternity past to do all things required to save the elect. The Father gave a particular people to Jesus as a love gift. God unconditionally chose and predestined a definite number of people to be saved, conformed to Christ, and adopted as His children. Number two, all people are born in Adam and are guilty, helpless, hopeless, hellbound, and totally unable to please God or come to Christ. 
Number three, when the outward call of the gospel goes forward, the Holy Spirit works effectually in the hearts of the elect to overcome their deadness and renew their wills through regeneration, thus making them willing and able to come to Christ. Number four, God grants the elect the gifts of repentance and faith, and they personally exercise trust in Jesus and meet the conditions of salvation, namely conversion. Number five, the elect infallibly come to Christ because they were chosen before time to come to Christ. They were given the internal call and regeneration to overcome their spiritual deadness. Number six, faith is the fruit of election, not the other way around. The sinner does not exercise faith and then become one of the elect by being marked in Christ. They were elected in eternity past unto salvation to be in Christ. And at a point in time when they believed, they were united to Christ. Number seven, what God started in eternity past in the covenant of redemption He will continue into eternity future and ensure the perseverance of his saints and their eternal security. So how do we view Matthew 22? We see it clearly teaching the distinction between an external call and an internal call. And that's the major difference between a Calvinist and an Arminian or a traditional Southern Baptist non-Calvinist. And so we just need to understand those distinctions. And so I encourage you to go read the traditional statement to find out what they believe. Go read the Baptist faith and message, which is the the unifying doctrine of Southern Baptists. Go read the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. Go read the Westminster Confession of Faith. Uh, Go spend time studying these scriptures in more detail to see if, in fact, the Bible does distinguish between an external call and an internal call of the gospel because the traditional statement flat out denies it. They say, we deny that there are two distinct calls. And so when they make a bold statement like that, that they deny something, then they've got to prove that biblically. Um, Another book that I would encourage you to get is Anyone Can Be Saved. It's basically the the traditionalist manifesto. They've taken every point in the traditionalist statement and and they've had different contributors that go contribute to that book to unpack the theology behind uh, the traditional statement. I think it's a good book to read to understand what their viewpoint is. And so I appreciate you listening to Understanding Christianity. If you have any questions or comments you can go to the understanding christianity facebook page Um, it's just a facebook page you can uh, put posts on there Uh, we put all of the uh, podcasts up there on that page sermon video from emmanuel baptist church where i pastor Uh, you can also go to my personal website seancole.net where you can find out more contact information i know many of you have emailed me in the past week and i'm trying to get to all the emails and I think I may uh, do a uh, podcast in the future based upon two of the emails I received. And and maybe one of the emails uh, that I received is on church membership uh, related to the regulative principle. So I may talk about church membership. And then another email that came in is on how do you transition a church to embrace the Reformed Doctrines of Grace. Um, If you personally as a pastor have come to that conclusion, how do you lead? How do you transition? How how do you do that uh, without blowing up a church? Um, And so uh, I think those are two really good topics to discuss on future podcasts. So go to iTunes, give us a a review and rating positively. We'd love to see that. Um, Again, thank you for listening to Understanding Christianity. Um, Until next time, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus.